I have something to tell you that might shock you or disturb you. Your soul is by nature Christian. Welcome to the Monday Muse. I'm Lee Benson. If you enjoy any of the content presented here today, you can find more about it on my Substack at This Roman Catholic Life or Substack.com forward slash at This Roman Catholic Life. Today I am talking about Tertullian, an early church father and theologian who lived in the 2nd and 3rd century AD. While he is an influential figure in the early church, he's also a bit of a controversial figure, and he might even be considered heretical. But despite that kind of shady past, he still very much impacts early Christian thought. I want to focus on a particular phrase that Tertullian is famous for coining. It's anima naturalitor Christiani, or the soul or psyche is naturally Christian. He drops this in his work, uh, Apology, or Apology for Christianity, and, it, and he doesn't quite go on to explain it. He just drops it and says, oh, testimony of the soul that is Christian or by nature Christian. But he develops this in another work called On the Testimony of the Soul. And in this work, On the Testimony of the Soul, in this work, he is grappling with an issue that we struggle with today, which is finding common ground or a common language between the believer and the unbeliever. As Tertullian points out, this difficulty lies in the fact that there's no common authority between the believer and the unbeliever. There's no common scripture between the believer and the unbeliever. So where can they begin a discussion? Where can they both agree or accept a concept that they can go forward in discussing or debating? Tertullian finds the answer to this problem in what he calls the testimony of the soul or testimonium anime, the witness or phenomena of the human soul be a Christian or non-Christian. The common ground, he says, is not found in any external authority or external scripture, but it's found within the human soul itself. He argues that if only men will look into their own souls, there they will find the, all the presuppositions of Christian thought, all the things which the pagan believer or the unbeliever asserts are found in the human soul. Tertullian's phrase that the soul is naturally Christian can be a bit misleading because, as he states, Christians are made, they're not born, they're made by grace and baptism. However, if you look into the human soul, he says, you will find all the things that Christians believe. You'll find all the things that Christians hold to be true. Whether that soul is Christian or not, he says, there you will find God. There you'll find demons, there you'll find sin, you'll find guilt, you'll find heaven, you'll find hell, you'll find immortality. And he says that even the spontaneous speech and behavior of unbelievers testifies to the fact that the soul is from God and that God is the Christian God. Christianity presents itself as a universal religion. And Tertullian is saying that universality is seen in the soul, that the soul of every single person, whoever they are, possesses this, the elements of Christianity, the basic raw materials of Christianity. Carl Jung was actually familiar with 
the writings of Tertullian, or at least Tertullian's idea that the soul was by nature Christian. In Tertullian's concept that the soul is by nature Christian, Jung found the words to describe what he called the religious function of the soul. Jung asserts that the psyche, or the soul, possesses by nature a religious function. And he says that this religious function is not something that he invented, but rather it was a discovery in the psyche. What Jung is saying about the psyche being religious by nature is this idea that, that it possesses a instinctuality about it, or a force of nature, as he'll call it, that we don't consciously have to think of inventing different religious symbols, but that by its own accord, the psyche expresses itself in religious structures, in religious symbols, in religious narratives, that myths are not something that we have to think up, but something that we experience. So Jung is saying that in his clinical practice, he's not attributing any sort of religious function to the psyche. He's finding it. He's discovering it there. That's the point of Tertullian, that he is discovering within the soul common patterns between the Christian and the non-Christian. Jung notes that his assertion that the psyche is by nature religious earns him ire and rejection from theologians who say that he is engaging in psychologism or reducing everything to the psyche into the mind. Jung rejects this and says that I have not invented this. I'm not the one asserting that this, the mind is this seat of archetypal images, but rather it's God himself who has placed these in the psyche. Jung himself writes, I did not attribute a religious function to the soul. I merely produced the facts which prove the soul is by nature religious or possesses a religious function. For Jung, in the psyche, he discovered the raw material of religion and its indispensable function. That in the psyche was the seedbed of all these archetypal images. This is the same thing that Tertullian was arguing, that in the soul are all these images that we find all throughout different religions. That's why for Tertullian, the, the soul was the common ground between the believer and the unbeliever. Because if one were to look within their souls, they would see these common archetypal patterns, images, and symbols. For Jung, the foundation of religion are the archetypes. Archetypes are universal innate symbols that emerge from the collective unconscious. The archetypes are a priori and inherited. They're not personal, nor are they conscious constructions. This is where Jung finds common ground between himself and Tertullian. Tertullian also believed that these archetypes that were shared between Christian and non-Christians were something that were spontaneous and came about, in modern language, from the unconscious. That deep within the soul of both believer and unbeliever, there welled up these, these non-conscious constructions. That if we look at symbols throughout the world, and we look at archetypes throughout the world, or we look at cultures and religions, and even the, we'll say, the myths of children, they all bear witness to, to a common pattern, a universal pattern. Beyond both Jung and Tertullian, there's a section in the Catechism that talks about man's desire for God. The Catechism writes, the desire for God is written in the human heart because man is created by God and for God, and God never ceases to draw to himself. Only in God will, he, will man 
find the truth and happiness he never stops searching for. In many ways throughout history, down to the present, men have given expression to their quest for God in religious beliefs and behaviors, in their prayers, sacrifices, rituals, meditations, and so forth. These forms of religious expression, despite their ambiguities they often bring with them, are so universal that one may call man a religious being. This is what both Tertullian and Carl Jung are getting at, that man is fundamentally and indispensably a religious being. There's something within man that gives itself unconsciously, spontaneously, whatever it is, to religion and to symbols of religion. Looking at man as a religious being is what we might call one of the internal proofs for the existence of God. You have sort of cosmological proofs for the existence of God, and then you have more anthropological, we'll say, proofs for the existence of God. One of these anthropological or internal proofs for the existence of God is the human person. The Catechism describes it as man's openness to truth, his sense of moral goodness, his freedom, the voice of conscience, his longings for the infinite and for happiness, man questions himself about God's existence. In all this, he discerns signs of his spiritual soul. The soul, the seed of eternity we bear in ourselves, irreducible to the material, can have its origin only in God. Theologians like St. Augustine and St. Bonaventure will say that looking into your soul, there you will find God. When man looks into his inward self, he finds that there's something in there that is not himself in a way. There's something in there that that has these aspirations and desires for things that are not of this world, or even something like his conscience, man's conscience, that works against him sometimes, that if we were truly masters of ourselves, we could master our conscience. But conscience is something that works against us, that is a witness against us, that when we do wrong, there's something that we did not create that tells us that. Where does that come from? Bonaventure will say that when we begin to look for God, when we say that we start with the finite world and we work to the infinite, or we look at the temporal world and go up to the eternal, he says we can't even begin that search. We can't even say temporal or finite without having an idea of the infinite or eternal. We only have the language of limits because we have this innate idea of limitlessness. I think this idea of the soul being the common ground from which you talk to people about God is a very interesting one. It's true that an atheist might reject the common ground because if it's all material, if all reality and existence is material, then no soul exists. However, if someone is at least open to the idea that the soul exists, or at least agnostic about it, or that there might be more than just material, this is an interesting argument. It's very different than the arguments from cosmology. That is, the arguments from the beginning of the world, the universe, time and contingency, or is how, how things are created. It's very much about looking inward and saying that you have desires and you have images. You have desires and you have a conscience that seems to come from something other than yourself. But what is that thing? I think that appealing to the soul or appealing to one's psyche as proof for the existence of God or as a common ground for talking to unbelievers and believers alike, I think that could prompt a very interesting conversation. 
and get people to think about the existence of God a little bit differently. I think in our very empirical and scientific and materialistic world, we think of God's existence purely in those terms. Can you prove him through scientific evidence? Whereas this is much more proving God by desire, proving God by your mind and in your interior soul. So I'll leave you with that. Is the idea that the soul is naturally Christian a compelling idea? Or is appeal to symbols and archetypal patterns convincing for the existence of God? Let me know what you think. Again, if you're interested in any of this, you can find more about it on my Substack at This Roman Catholic Life. Also, if you want to ask me a question or want me to discuss something on the Monday Muse, please email me at basicallyrelatedpodcast at gmail.com. I'll see you next week.